Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Wayne Sachuk. Wayne grew up in the wilderness areas of Canada's Saskatchewan province. He has spent his life exploring this pristine wilderness area of northern Canada. In this episode, Wayne shares stories from these trips into areas rarely visited by man. On one particular trip, Wayne found himself trapped in a mountain pass by a snowstorm with little food and running out of provisions. Escape came in the form of a trail left by a herd of caribou. This is a transformative event in his life. Thereafter, he became an advocate for the wilderness, helping plan and create the Musqua Kachika Management Area, protecting 6.5 million hectares of pristine wilderness. Wayne, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that you're able to join us. Thank you, Michael. Wayne, you live up in the Canadian wilderness. What was it like growing up in British Columbia? Well, in British Columbia in the 50s when I grew up, it was a pretty wild country then. Uh, we grew up on the Alaska or the Hart Highway, which is almost to the Alaska Highway. And at that time, you know, it was pretty much wilderness. There was uh, no roads up any of the side valleys. And, and it was just basically the Hart Highway running through the Pine River uh, Valley. And that was, that was it. And so during my lifetime, it's kind of proceeded from there to roads up almost every single valley in this in this part of the country. And, and I'm, I'm talking about the Peace River country in northern British Columbia. So when we grew up, I mean, there was grizzlies on the hillsides and, you know, elk and moose used to uh, travel our fields every day and that kind of thing. Bears, wolves, you know, it was wild country for sure. And and so I did uh, get a grounding in, in real wilderness and just growing up, just being there in appreciating the country, I guess, or living in the country. You're best known for your wilderness expeditions. Did you start out as a wilderness guide or explorer, or what did you do before? Well, I was always interested in the wilderness, and we had horses, and uh, I was always interested in hiking and canoeing and exploring the country. But no, I at that point, uh, our family was a logging family. So my dad um, was a faller, and we owned a logging company. Uh, jointly as, you know, later on when I got to be in my 20s. Yeah, so that was the basic bottom line. I also did quite a bit of guiding at that point, uh, hunting guiding for uh, grizz mostly grizzly and, and moose in this country up, up here. So, yeah, it's all associated with the wilderness. But to a large part, uh, you know, what we did, what we did at that point was exploit. Uh, you know, we were we were using the, the wilderness for uh, taking what we needed from it, essentially whether it was wildlife or timber or whatever it was. And that was what we did at that when I was growing up. That was our family's job. Now, when you guide now into the wilderness, you go by pack horses. My understanding, though, growing up, you didn't always have a full appreciation of the horse. <laughs> no, I certainly didn't. No, because, you know, those uh, horses, all they ever did was, you know, you put the hay in one end and it comes out the other end and you have to pack the hay to them and then you have to 
pack it away from them when they're finished with it. So no, I, I thought they were pretty much uh, uh, worthless things until I started going out in the mountains and you know packing my uh, my uh, cast iron frying pan on my in my uh, rucksack and uh, you know uh, half sacks of Coke, uh, bottles of Coke and that kind of thing, Coca Cola. Yeah, so when I started going out in the mountains and actually doing the hiking, I found it was a lot easier. Why not use some of these useless horses that we have here? And so that's basically what we what we started to do, and and never look back uh, once we started using the using the horses. Which uh, you know they're not useless at all, are they? They're they're our partners and our companions, and and they work hard for us and also enjoy their lives. So great, great. Uh, it's been a great experience being associated with the animals, with the horses for so long. And you've been doing that for over thirty years now. Yeah, over thirty years we. Well, we started going up in the mountains really in the 70s, uh, kind of in the mid-70s, and, and then uh, never looked back. We just uh, started taking longer and longer trips. In uh, 1983 was our uh, 45-day trip into the uh, Spatsizi country, which is over to the west from us. That was with a, uh, a bunch of my buddies from my bar buddies, my drinking buddies. 45 days is a long time out there in the, in the wilderness. Of course, you run out of things out there, you know, uh, booze for one. And uh, when that happened, things got a little ragged on that trip. And so <laughs> the next year, uh, my girlfriend, Carol Ann, and I decided, no, we're not going to go with anybody else. We're just, just the two of us are going to do a trip. And so we started out, we launched on a, an 85-day pack trip out of, uh, on the head of the Prophet River and the Musquad in, into that country, which is the first time into the uh, what would become eventually the Muskwekachika at that time, just more wilderness. Uh, the Northern Rockies in British Columbia is what it was. I want to talk a lot about that trip, but before we get there, I have a couple of questions. Um, sure. First, do you have a good drinking story for us? <laughs> good drinking story, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I actually have two, Michael. The first one was um, the head of the Prophet River, and that was on the trip in 1984. And at that point, of course, it was it's a long ways to fly in there, and you have to make sure you're very efficient. And so as a result, we packed uh, overproof rum, which is, I don't know what it is, 70% or something. And I remember that first drink out of that bottle because it had been several weeks since we'd had any liquor at all. And we were coming back to one of our uh, spots where we had a, a cache at an airstrip. Uh, my, uncle had, my uncle Norman had flown in and brought us a bunch of supplies, including this bottle of overproof rum. And I still remember that first drink. Oh, that was sweet. Beautiful thing. But then the brakes were off because I hadn't had it for so long. I ended up in a, a very deplorable state on the on the uh, bank of the of the Sekonka River at about 2 a.m. <laughs> I don't remember the rest of the evening. And I stopped drinking for at least a month after that, which was a more remarkable at the time. So that was one drinking story that I thought about. And the second one was on the trip uh, a little bit later, about in the early 90s, we were doing a trip up the, up the Musqua River. And we had to cross the Musqua River. Now, you have to understand, at that point, the Musqua River is, uh, it's a big, fairly big river, a deep valley. And the valley had, was fully timbered. It had been burnt over. And at that point, we were trying to find a route uh, from basically the south side of the Musqua, across to the north side where we knew that the Badeau Trail had run because we 
had traveled that trail in uh, in the 1984 trip. So it was about 10 years later. Oh, it was a hot day. And we had no uh, no chainsaw, as I said. So I just remember chopping these fire-killed uh, logs to try and get the pack string through. It took hours and hours to do this. It was a, a huge task. And I remember at one point we had run out of water. We didn't have any water with us at all. We drank whatever we had. And I remember chopping away on this big log and then hearing a little trickle off to my left in a in a little a little kind of a swale. And I clambered over the logs and through the raspberry bushes and the grass. And I remember the flies, the, the, the bees were buzzing around. And it was so hot and warm and beautiful. And then there was that little six-inch uh, stream of cold, clear water. And I remember burying my face in that and taking so many drinks of, of beautiful, beautiful water. And I, I just remember thinking, oh, water is life. There's no doubt about it. Water is life. And that restored us, and we were able to keep on going and eventually make the uh, Badeau Trail and head on up the Musqua where we were intending to go. But that 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 drink has that memory of that drink has always stayed with me for you know what has it been now more almost almost thirty years. Your expeditions take place in the Canadian Rockies. For people who are unfamiliar with that area, how would you describe that area? The Canadian Rockies are, uh, you know, my, the landscape is very similar to Yellowstone. If anybody knows that or any of the mountain parks, uh, Banff and Jasper and so on in Canada. But this is the northern extension. So it's north of the Peace, uh, but it's the same mountains. The only difference is, is that, you know, the tide of industrial development or you could call it colonization swept across the continent. And this part was the last piece that has not been totally accessed and and developed. Essentially, what we have is a big chunk of the continental wilderness that once existed. It's about 15 million acres or 6.5 million hectares, which is, you know, for those who care, it's about the size of Ireland, roughly, or Switzerland, sort of in that range. It's huge. It's six and a half percent of the province of BC. And so, when you when you uh, get into that country, I mean, it is it is huge wilderness. There's no question about that. But the landscape and the mountains are the same all the way up and down the the rocky the Rocky Mountains. They're very similar. When you see pictures of that area, you you see these high jagged rocky peaks, just miles and miles and miles of forest, and then vast valleys. It, it's kind of almost. It's almost hard to comprehend how big, wide, and untamed that area is. Well, there's nothing like it in the states. Uh, you know, you can't you can't find anything like that even even close. Uh, the Kachika is 2.2 million hectares, which is what is that? It's about seven million acres of pure wilderness. There's a the odd little road that an outfitter has made a trail down to the river with to for jet boat access and that kind of thing to their camps. But but other than that, the 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 valley is the whole entire watershed is pristine. And that is a resource of, you know, truly international importance. It's it's uh it's staggeringly important that we have these places that are still intact and still whole and still still vibrant on a scale that is just mind-blowing. I mean, when we go in, we can travel for three months at a time, 
and never cross a road or or uh, see a power line or pipeline, anything like that. No, no industrial infrastructure. And so, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing country to be, to be in and to experience. On the wall behind you, uh, you have a number of what look to be first people's artifacts. Do you have much contact with them? And if so, what uh, on these travels? Yeah, the first nations have used this land for millennia, literally. And so we see their signs and, you know, the evidence that they've been there before. One of the things we see quite often is uh, uh, hearths. So there'll be a, an arrangement of rocks. Maybe there'll be three rocks together. They like to put two and then one behind it. Maybe, you know, like the size of a loaf of bread or a little bigger. And then they build a small fire in there and that third rock reflects the heat. That uh, we find those. We find uh, flakes from tool making. I remember coming up the uh, Bessa River and the, uh, following a cat trail that had been put in, and there was a small creek. And on the other side of that creek, there was a little a bank, but you know, no trees now because the cat had pushed it off. But there on the ground, in the clay, was a scattering of rocks. And it was kind of in a semicircle, maybe a couple feet wide or so. What is that? That's really odd because there, there, was, there were no other rocks around in this spot. It was all just a clay bank. And I, I bent down and had a look. And I picked one of those little pieces up. Sure enough, it's a flake. Somebody has created a tool there in the past, you know, flaked away all these pieces. And there they were still laid out in a, well, what would be a, a, a classic example of lithic scatter. And I felt a real connection with the, with the uh, person who had done that because there was the evidence that they were still, you know, there making a, uh, the evidence was still there that they were making a tool on that very spot. Sometimes we do find the artifacts themselves. And this is a uh, hand axe that came from a trail in the Muscoquichica. This axe is, was laying there for a long, long time because this side is nice and clean. That's the probably the upper upper side of the axe. And this one, this side is is got a more of a patina and a bit, it looks a bit dirtier, but that's the chemical change from laying protected for so many years. How long? Nobody knows. It could be, it could be uh, uh, centuries, possibly even millennia, although this was right in the middle of a horse trail. So I think probably uh, hundreds of years is more likely. Beautiful thing. This is made of black chert, which is a local stone in the, uh, in the Muscoquichica. Beautiful thing. Thing evidence of their presence. Are there still folks out there living? There are uh, uh, um, folks uh, living in the in the country for sure. There's a couple of native communities around the outside of the Muscoquichica, Quatacha, uh, Fort Liard, the uh, yeah the Fort Ware folks, uh, but all around the Muscoquichica, uh, First Nations access that country for hunting and and just uh, you know carrying out the traditional pursuits. So that continuity has not been broken. It's still there. Also, a lot of them are involved in the guide, guide outfitting industry and acting as guides and, and wranglers and that kind of thing. But uh, more importantly, you know, they, they live in the country and are still part of it, as they always have been. And certainly uh, around uh, Moose Lake, which is just south of Muncho Lake on the Alaska Highway, is First Nations community. They're still active in the Muscoquichica and still living there as they always have for well, who knows how long? Certainly, certainly for thousands of years. 
I'd like to take you to your expedition, Prophet River. Why the why the Prophet River? Why the Prophet River? Wow, it's because of my dad. My dad would tell me about the Prophet River all the time. He said, "Oh, that country up there." He said, "You know, it, that that's where all the First Nations guides go at that time." Uh, we were uh, living near near uh, Chetwynd and Moberly Lake. There's a big reserve, a uh, couple of big reserves, just north of uh, Chetwynd at Moberly Lake. And all the folks that we knew at that time, because my dad was a contractor and, and uh, clearing for hydro dams, clearing for power lines and that kind of thing, we, we, uh, a lot of the guys that came to work for, for my dad were the First Nations folks from, uh, you know, uh, Moberly and uh, the, the surrounding reserves. They went up to the Muskwekachika all the time, the Prophet River, where the giant moose and giant grizzlies and the caribou were so thick, they'd come in and and bother the horses, that kind of thing. So my dad always told me about the the Prophet River, and and so what, so I just decided, well, why not just go? And and uh, after our trip into the Spatsizi, which was fantastic, the the landscape is amazing over there. Nah, next time, let's try the let's try the Prophet. And so that's what we did. We packed up. Uh, we had six head of horses, my girlfriend and I, little dog, Rio, and away we went. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a it was an undertaking. Take us through that trip as you set out. What were your expectations? You know, we knew that uh, you know we were planning to spend three months out there and do a long, long trip. So it was a it was a bit daunting. And as we came over the hill at Pink Mountain, travel through the community of uh, of Pink Mountain, you come down the hill on the other side, and there laid out before you on a big swath of country to the west is is the line of peaks on the in the Musquecachica or the Prophet River country and I I just I remember the feeling that oh my gosh we're going to go into those mountains and we're not coming out for three months we're going to be spending our time in there what are we going to encounter uh, are we going to be able to survive how how are we going to be able to cross those rivers and find those passes because at that time there was no maps of a good part of that country uh, there was no one to fifty thousands, for instance, and of course GPS and all of that kind of stuff was unheard of. We had no communication, no no way to communicate, no radio or anything else. Yeah, my <laughs> I remember my mom was pretty worried because here we were heading off, and she wouldn't hear hear from us for you know weeks and weeks, if not months. So yeah, it was a it was a a, a daunting prospect, but also very exciting. I mean, here we are, we're going into this amazing country, and uh, yeah, we're independent. We are. You know, we have our six horses. We can travel wherever we want and whenever we want. It, it was a, an amazing experience, no question about that. Let's do a typical day on the on that expedition. Expedition life is um, follows a rhythm. First thing, uh, you have to find out where the horses are. That is the first thing. So you get up in the morning, listen for those bells. Can you hear the bells? If you can't, then you go out and look for them. Find them where they are. Could be. Who knows? It could be anywhere from 50 yards to 5,000. <laughs> and away you go, <laughs> looking for those horses. Get them back into camp and then uh, saddle up, get ready to pack up. Of course, you finished all your, your breakfast, pack up all the gear, take down the tents, tarp if you have it up, and uh, pack up and then head out into the mountains. The The hard part, of course, is that you know, there were no maps of the trails in that country. So we basically had to route find the, the entire way. 
And that was, um, the, well, I shouldn't say there was no maps. There was a map of the Badeau expedition. And the Badeau expedition had mapped out where they went. So we did have that. And we had other, other reports like, uh, for instance, one of the guide outfitters told us, yeah, we have a cabin on the upper Muskwa and we come from the Toshodi. So we knew that there was a trail between there somewhere. And that was the, that was what we um, were going on. Is it, you know, basically hearsay that there, there was a trail somewhere and that was what we had to go on. And, but that was, uh, you know, that breeds independence and self-reliance. And uh, I, that was a good lesson for me. Now, did you have a general compass direction that you were following? No, not exactly. We had we had goals that we wanted to get to. Like we wanted to to get to certainly the upper profit. And then we wanted to uh get to Fern Lake on the head of the Musqua, which is the con it's the it's the Rocky Mountain divide. So we, we we knew we wanted to go to those places. And then over the top into the Chesterfield and Hayworth country, uh, which we did. A rough country over there. That it's on the uh western side of the Rockies and uh it gets a lot more rain, uh, a lot, lot more windfall. The trees are bigger. You know, even Devil's Club could come into that country. So you know that it's getting pretty wet and pretty challenging over there. But it was an interesting country to, to visit. And then we came back and we wanted to get to the Gatho uh, up on the, uh, well, getting close to the Toshodi. And that's as far as we managed to make it onto the headwaters of the Toshodi River. And then we re- re- retraced our steps and headed back uh, for the highway uh, down the profit. As you're traveling along, tell us about the wildlife you see. The Muskwakachika, it's the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. And so it's a, it's a rain shadow. So the rain is not as heavy on the eastern slopes. As a result, there's a lot of grasslands. And so the populations of elk and moose, uh, caribou, stone sheep, mountain goat are are very, very you know, relatively high, uh, higher than, well, just about anywhere in the Rockies. And so we're living with the animals. We see them all the time. You know, you can be woken up in the middle of the night by the thump, thump, thump of a, of a, a moose trotting by, for instance. You can see a grizzly bear at any point. They, they, can, they can come around at night or, or uh, during the day, you can surprise them on the trail. But, you know, uh, although, although this happened many times, you know, we've never had an instance where a bear has caused us any grief whatsoever. A couple of times they've charged, but, you know, this is like, uh, they're just kind of curious, basically. And their response is to charge closer and see what's going on. And so, you know, if you don't panic at that point <laughs> and, you know, start shooting, for instance, it, the, usually those situations are all resolved. And we've, as I say, we've never had an issue. A bear has never even come into camp and, and uh, wrecked our, uh, our grub boxes or whatever, and we keep all our food in the panniers. But the difference is we're not hunting out there. And so we don't have meat in camp and we don't, uh, uh, we keep a very clean camp. We burn all of our garbage uh, as soon as it's, uh, you know, as soon as we're, we're done with it, for instance, and pack out everything that's left. And that, that process uh, really helps out with the bears. We never, we've never had a, a problem with the bears, I've said. In Montana, I had a, an encounter with a moose during an adventure race. And I had oh. never seen a moose before oh. <laughs> up close or far away. And you don't realize how huge those animals are. Very intimidating when they're close. <laughs> oh, and dangerous too. And of course, you know, I was naive. I didn't know much about them. We're coming up through this little slot pass. There wasn't much, 
I mean, much room. There's just a, yeah. a trail at the top of this uh, this mountain pass. And I'm walking up and going, oh, look at the moose. Look and at the moose. one of my, my teammates grabs my pack, pulls me back, <laughs> and then schools me <laughs> on moose. And so we had to scramble up around uh, <laughs> to avoid the moose. But yeah, they are big, big animals. Yeah, and generally they're, you know, generally they're they're not a problem, but you know, they're not aggressive unless they've got a young calf that they want to protect. Uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, get around a, a running bull either. But, you know, but the the thing is that they're not all the same. You know, they have different characters. Uh, out at our main base camp, we uh, there's quite a few moose around there and we watch them, you know, uh, along the shores of the lake from the camp. And we get to know these moose. And there's one moose. We called her the, the old bag. And that old moose, for some reason, she she was just cantankerous as hell. And if, if another moose came around, even though it had a calf, she would just charge that thing up on her hind legs and charge the other moose. She was just a bag. And while the other ones wouldn't do that, you know, they were calmer and basically friendlier. So, yeah, it just depends which moose you meet, Michael. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> you never know. You never know. On that Prophet River expedition, there was one point in time where it got pretty sketchy. Where was that at? Well, we'd been on the trail for uh, uh, over 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 two months, and on the way up in in the summer and the early part of the summer, we'd encountered a a guide outfitter who um, uh, on the trail that uh, uh, gave us some trail advice on where to go, how to get back. He said, "You've come up the hardest way. You've come up the the Musqua River, and that's." That's really uh, pretty challenging, but we come a different way, and we, we go by way of the head of the prophet, he said. But meanwhile, our pack strings were passing on the trail, and there was no time. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get a map that he, he could at least show me where this thing was, this route was, but that wasn't possible just because of the way the horses were acting up. And so we had to, we had to separate. We had to get the strings apart, and, and that was the end of the conversation. Well, then we had to... Uh, uh, decide how we were going to get back. Well, here's this outfitter has told us about the head of the prophet. Let's go that way. So we we decided to find that route, and we chose what we thought was the most reasonable route through the the mountains. But it turned out that it was a uh, there was actually no route there. We ended up going up a, a rock face. It was this very small track that we could get up along the side of this rock face and just get the horses up through there. But by the time they got up, a couple had slipped, their legs were all bleeding, and it was a, a rough, rough spot. And I knew we can't get the horses back down here. So we were committed. We were on our way up to what we thought was the pass. But again, there was no no maps. Like uh, we had, uh, I think at that point, it was a one to 250,000 map that we had, which is so general that it, you know, you can hide a, a, a 200 foot cliff in that map and it wouldn't even show. So yeah, we ended up camping uh, that night at, it was well into the Alpine. There was a huge glacier on the uh, mountain behind us and all night long that glacier kept calving off and you could hear these boom, boom as the ice came off the, the glacier. And it started to snow. And this was in uh, the uh, early part of September, about uh, 10th 10th of September or something like that. 
and down comes the snow and it starts to build up. And we know we've got to get over this pass and we have not found a shred of a trail. So at that point, before we'd even started to tackle the pass, it um, things were looking dicey potentially for, for, well, you know, we could always walk out, but our pack string, there was a chance that we could lose the, all, all of the, the animals there for sure. It was a challenging situation. Now, get up into this pass. How many days did it take you to actually cross through? We started off um, the first day on the pass. We left from the um, uh, uh, big bar on the Musqua, uh, heading south towards the Quadacha. And then we turned up a side valley to head over to the head of the Prophet. So the next, the next day, as I said, it had started to snow. And we decided, no, we're going to wait. We're going to wait a day. Even though we were running out of stove fuel, we had about two cups of stove fuel left. Very little food at that point. And there was absolutely no firewood. We were camped behind a uh, huge boulder about the size of a, a bus. That was the only thing, only shelter we had. And the snow kept coming down. And it got deeper and deeper. And the next morning, it was still cloudy and still snowing. And, but there was no choice. We just had to go. Uh, we, we agreed. We have to leave. So we packed up the horses and headed out over the pass, or what we thought was the pass. But the snow kept coming, and it got up past knee deep. As we were approaching what we thought was the final stretch for the pass, we came to a, an area, basically it was a river of boulders that was flowing down the, the uh, mountainside under its own weight and the combined forces of gravity and, and uh, frost, you know, frost action and so on. So it was like a slow motion uh, river of, of uh, boulders. I knew at that point that it was very, very bad. And I told, I told Caroline, I, I, we actually stopped, I stopped the string and I said, this is really bad. I walked back to her and we had a little a talk. I said, this is, this is really bad. This is leg breaking stuff. And she said, well, do we have any choice? I, I said, no, I don't think we do. We can't go down to the Quadrachal. That's too rough and take too long. We can't go back. We have to go ahead. Okay. That was a decision. On we went. Inevitably, I heard it. I heard Carol Ann yell, Wayne. And I, I looked back and I saw our pack horse Flash. Who's, Flash was a favorite guy. He was young and friendly and strong young horse. Beautiful horse. He just, we loved that horse. Bright blue eyes. Striking guy. And I heard a crack. And I went back. I looked back and there he was hanging over a boulder. His foot had gotten stuck in a hole. He had over-levered and, and basically broken his back leg. Of course, at that point, there's no hope that you're going to be able to uh, get him out of there. So there was nothing else to do but head back to my saddle horse and get the rifle. So at that point, um, you know, I, that was one of the hardest things I've, I've ever had to do uh, is to take that action. And it was ironic that, you know, he had been shod, the good horse had been shod uh, months before, miles and miles of rough travel. And when I shot, uh, he had levered over the boulder, fell down into the hole on the other side. And as a final kind of an incongruous touch, one of, the, one of his shoes popped off and tinkled on the rocks. I could hear that metal going tinkle, tinkle, tinkle as it fell down the rocks. And I... I thought that is so strange. And, and then our, our beautiful horse lying there in a tangle of, 
uh, bloody ropes and packs and so on. So we had no choice but to, because survival depended on it, you have to put your feelings aside and focus on the task that has to be done. And in this case, that was unpack that horse, take what we wanted from the the saddle. We left the saddle there and uh, we had no way to pack it. Pack everything on my saddle horse, uh, his packs, and say goodbye and head on up the mountain uh, towards what we thought was the pass. So at that point, it got steeper and steeper and steeper. We ended up going up a, a snowfield that we thought was potentially the the trail, but of course it was all covered with snow. But there, coming in from the right was a set of caribou tracks, and it looked like a trail of a of a few of these animals had come through. And there they were going up the way we thought the trail should go. And so so we followed that trail up through the snow until we got right to the crest of the divide. It was about 7,500 feet. And at that point, we were looking to find a way down. And as I came to what I thought would be the trail down to the Prophet River, I could feel the wind behind me blowing the snow, the snowflakes out over my shoulders. And as I come to that, what I thought was the, the edge of the trail, it dropped away in a, in a sheer set of cliffs, hundreds and hundreds of feet down. There was no way that we could get the horses down there. And the wind was blowing those snowflakes out over my shoulders into a, a white void because of the, it, was, it was so uh, cloudy. Oh, well, misty and snowy and, and so on. The phrase just popped into my head, no way forward. No way forward. What do you do? Well, the only thing we could do was follow the caribou. They had turned, instead of going what we thought was the pass, they had turned and gone up the shoulder of the mountain to the, to the right, steeply up through the rocks. Well, we followed them. We took the pack string and away we went up through the rocks. Well, at the top, it had, they had arced over and dropped down into a little plateau. And I managed to spot those caribou. There was five big bulls with their with their antlers moving in the in the in the mist and one small bull i thought those guys they're saving us because they you know we were following their trail so i, I immediately pulled back i didn't want to scare them because i didn't want them to you know leave their preferred trail so we i pulled back and we waited a while until they had they had left and then we came back came down to that spot and there was a small lake right, with about 2 feet of slush in the in the water, but at least we didn't have to boil uh, water, uh, boil snow to make water. We we could uh, drink the water directly out of the out of the little lake, and not waste our precious uh, stove fuel. And so we camped there that night in about yeah snow over knee deep. We were very careful to sweep everything all the snow away that we could, put down tarps, put all our gear on that on those tarps, and cover it up so that it wasn't lost because. In that kind of snow, you could lose gear easy. The next morning, we woke up and the snow fortunately had stopped. And there were the line of tracks that the caribou had left, heading off toward the Prophet River where we wanted to go. And then suddenly they turned and down this steep ravine they went. But there was a a trail there that we could follow along along the edge of the ravine. And as we were traveling down the mountain, I hit this... Basically, it was like a river of wet cement that was stationary, wasn't flowing, 
but all the snow had fallen off the cliffs that we had tried to get around the night before and was avalanching and flowing down the slope in a river. If we would have been hit by that, I mean, our, our whole pack string would have been carried down the hill and there was more cliffs below that we would have, it would have been, it would have been pretty close to fatal if not so. But ultimately the caribou led us through and we managed to follow them all the way down to the bottom and there, blessed, the blessed head of the Prophet River, there was a little little trickle of water that was the about this wide that was the very base, the very beginning of the Prophet River. And so, wow, you know, the caribou had saved us, saved our lives, saved the lives of of our pack string as well, because there's no way we could have got them through any other way. I mean, I could see from your expression as we're talking the the loss of flash. You know, I have to imagine being out there. Weeks and weeks with your horses, you you get a you bond with them. They're like your family. Uh, that has to be quite a loss. Oh, and and to to take action to end the life is uh, it's a uh, it's totally wrenching. I mean, it, it 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 takes a chunk out of you, a big one. And I know I feel it to this day. Describe for me the person who started on that trip, and the person who came out of that wilderness. How did you change? You know, I went in an exploiter and came out a conservationist. I think that was what, if I could put it into that short of a sentence, I think that's how it went. I, I uh, At the beginning, I was interested in what, what we could discover. I was going to go hunting and, oh, fishing. Oh, I love to fish. Let's catch some more of those nice big bull trout and whatever else. It was all about what I could take from the wilderness. You know, could be also, you know, pictures or stories or whatever what I could take. And then as I lived in the wilderness for month after month, and I got to understand how things go out there and how important it is and how interconnected everything is and what a, what an amazing, vibrant whole it is. Then I began to understand that those actions that we used to take, like, you know, logging, we go into a valley, pristine, put in a road and just log the thing out. Well, you know, at that point, I thought, oh, this is just the natural way of things. It's what we do as humans and normal, natural, the forest will recover and blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, that's all true, except that there's interim issues that arise. Like, for instance, where are the caribou going to live in the, in the meantime when you've taken all their habitat away? What about the wolverines? And on and on and on. And so I realized that my association with the wilderness and that profit trip was, was instrumental in that, that those healthy ecosystems those in the wilderness are so important and so fragile at the same time and and i guess it took it took months to to understand that and also uh, the fact that the we've been saved by the caribou you know it was a it was profound and and i felt that i owe a debt to the wilderness and and uh, that had essentially well, both nurtured and, and also saved us. That debt meant that, you know, it didn't happen for a while. It was about, uh, I don't know, half a dozen years or more until I started to actually work for the conservation of the Musquecachica. They were going to punch some roads right into uh, the head of, uh, I think it, that was the Prophet River and also the, uh, the Sikany River at that point. And I realized what this was going to do to the country because we'd seen it around Chetwin, you know, valley after valley that we had, you know, personally 
eroded and essentially destroyed from a an ecological perspective. And I realized this was going to happen up in the Muskoka too. You know, it was coming and it's coming like a freight train. And somebody had to stand up and do something about it. And I thought, well, you know, I guess I might as well because, uh, you know, I feel it. And and so so that's what I did. I just stood up and started speaking for the, the protection of the place. And uh, yeah, uh, many, many years later, here we are. Those many, many years, I understand, was a lot of good work by you and a lot of folk, the community, to protect that area. Can you tell us about that, what it took to protect that area? You know, it started out, uh, the protection of the MK, it started out for us uh, working with the Chetwin Environmental Society. Uh, we founded the society and then and then used it as a mechanism to basically bring our our concerns to government and to make it public as well. And the the fact that the roads were going into so many so many valleys was was a, a real a real goad to us a real push we had we had to do something about that and at least you know if we couldn't stop it at least we could get it to a point where it was acceptable and so that was uh what i thought going in uh to the conservation movement if you want for the mk and um at that point the government was starting a new process it was called the land and resource management planning process because we were, you know, kind of the, loud, the loudest group. <laughs> they contacted us and asked if we wanted to participate. Better to have your enemies close and then, you know, you can you can work with these guys. And so uh, absolutely, let's let's uh, get involved with planning. And so that started in the uh, in late 92, 1992. And these are multi-sector planning processes that including all the people with interests in the in the Musquecachica with and the surrounding land base as well it wasn't only in the MK it was it was uh, all that land to the east which is basically the the industrial uh, uh, heartland uh, for for certainly for oil and gas and lots of forestry and and some mining as well so all these folks had to be at the at the table uh, first nations were they were they had mixed uh, participation because from a political perspective the government had said you have to check your rights at the door essentially so that we can do this planning first nations didn't want to do that they're not stakeholders they 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 have a an interest in the land base that has been guaranteed by the courts or affirmed by the courts i should say so they're a different level and as a result uh, many first nations uh, did not want to participate in the planning process but some did and I think that those ones who did participate, I think they, they, they got two kicks at the can. First of all, they got to uh, address many of their issues through the land and resource management planning process. But then also after that, they got to, again, uh, negotiate with government on specific points that had not been covered or, or were missed or, or were inadequately addressed during, the, during that process. So I think those uh, First Nations who participated, I, I think they actually got two, two kicks at the can. It was an important one. But for the rest of us, all of us who were there at the table, we desperately wanted to get these things done. It took from 1992 to 1998 of, you know, pretty concentrated negotiations. Six years locked in cooperation, as we want to say. <laughs> we had no choice. If, if we didn't come to an agreement, government was going to come to an agreement. They were going to make their own decision if we didn't come to an agreement. So this was a powerful incentive for us to get our act together. 
Because if, if we didn't do it, government was going to step in and that could go anywhere. Nobody wanted that because it's unpredictable. So essentially, we started to negotiate. Going in, I thought my way was the right way. I had the vision. I had an idea on what should, should happen. And it was absolutely 100% correct. I found out just how wrong I was. The collected wisdom of the group is so much more than any one individual. Solutions would arise just spontaneously from around the table to vexing, vexing problems that we, we had encountered. And so I, I began to, although I may disagree with the other people at the table uh, on the specifics, I understood where they were coming from. It took years. And a respect started to grow. I respected these people because they were there for reasons that I could identify with. They wanted to make sure that their families were healthy, that they had, you know, decent jobs. They wanted to also protect the environment. Nobody wanted to wreck the environment. And so it was just a matter of finding out how we could accommodate all these interests. It was a consensus-based process. So essentially, we all had to agree at the end. Now, you could, you know, agreement could take the form with okay, I'm going to let this go forward. I don't agree with all of it, but I, it, it's okay uh, to go forward. I, I, won't, I won't oppose it. It could be like that. Or it could be 100% agreement. Yeah, we're all, we all love this idea. Or, you know, alternatively, no, uh, none of us like this idea. Or somebody let, doesn't like this enough that they can't accept it. Therefore, we have to go somewhere else and find another plan. So I guess the upshot is that that consensus process was extremely powerful and those agreements that we came to at that point are still standing, uh, still in place, and still strong. And the reason is because, you know, uh, it, it was vetted through uh, through six years of intense negotiations. And, and uh, yeah, very, very powerful process. Now, what's the status of the Muskwa Kachika now? The Muskwa Kachika right now is, uh, it has its own legislative designation. So there's an act, the Muskwa Kachika Management Area Act. And that, uh, that specifies that wilderness and wildlife must be maintained over time. Now, not the Muskwakajig is not a park. Through the process, we agreed that about a third of it would be put into parks, roughly, and that's off limits to industrial development. But the other two thirds would be open for industrial development with the proviso that wilderness and wildlife had to be maintained in the, in the long run. Now, how do you do that? How do you you know, put in an oil and gas well and, and uh, you know, maintain wilderness in the long run. Well, you make your roads temporary. You put your infrastructure in a way that can be pulled out after. And this has been done. We, there's a case in the, it's called Chicken Creek, uh, Chicken Creek Project, Murphy Oil. And they built a snow road. They actually had snow guns, you know, like you'd use for a ski, ski hills and that kind of thing. And created snow, built the snow base for this road. It was about I think in total about uh, probably 10 kilometers, maybe a little less, maybe a little less than that, six kilometers up into the mountains. And, you know, from our perspective as conservationists, we're overjoyed that the, the, these wells were unproductive. <laughs> they, they were dusters. They drilled two wells up there. But after that, they took all those roads out. And even the pad that the well was on, they had hauled that material in, put it down on geotextile mats, and remove that at the end of the development cycle. The valley, if you went in there now, you'd have you'd be hard pressed to to identify where those well sites were, or that they had even existed. It's about it's been about 
uh, 15 years now, maybe, maybe a little more since they went in. Remarkable. That balance could be found. Yeah. Yeah. With the proviso, it's the only example. <laughs> you <Well>. know, <laughs> there's a real inertia in the business to keep doing it the way we've always done it because we know what we're doing. It's the cheapest way or least expensive. And, and we understand it. So to go to something new, like for instance, heliportable drilling to fly these rigs in and out, that kind of thing is a real huge challenge. Mind you, they can do it when they're pushed and when they have to. So the Muscoca Chica is so valuable and so important that, you know, everybody has to understand that it's got to be done differently here. If you're going to do it at all, that is the challenge of the MK. You have to feel a sense of pride and satisfaction of being such a um, critical part of that development. Yeah, and I, I would say um, there was a lot of us involved. You know, it, it, took a, it took a whole bunch of people to make this happen. The big conservation groups kicked in, uh, naturalists, uh, you know, uh, fish and wildlife groups, uh, uh, BC Wildlife Fed, you know, conservation, conservation of, of all stripes, hunting, non-hunting, everyone had a, a, a role to play to push this thing forward. And so, you know, I, I was, I kind of view myself as, because I was the negotiator at the table, I was kind of the pointy, pointy bit of the spear, but, but it took everyone to make this thing happen. And it would not have happened. Oh, and I should, before I forget, um, you know, First Nations, while they weren't, uh, officially directly involved, they certainly put the wheel to the shoulder, their shoulder to the wheel, and uh, supported the, the project. And, and in that way, it, it went forward. Also, uh, wildlife groups, and so on. Let's not forget government, because government had to agree. And, you know, you're taking a big chunk of ground, and you're changing the entire way that it, it, it's uh, operated. And some of it you're setting aside. This is a real big challenge. And there's a lot of different attitudes out there that the mayor of um, Fort Nelson came to the table at one point, and we were talking about the Musquecachica because it was on the horizon, and people were scared of this thing, taking away this land base. And the mayor of Fort Nelson said, listen, my idea is if it's going to be a protected area, it's going to be one mile by one mile, and you can drive to it. Oh, well, I, I, I uh, had to respond to that, and I said, you know, there's a lot of opinions on how wildlife should be treated and wilderness should be treated. But for sure, one of the things that we, we do agree is that it should be bigger than one mile by one mile. And so we agree to disagree on this point. That's, that's where we left that. And fortunately, you know, our vision and the vision of the table prevailed at the end of the day. And the Muscoca was put in place. And what do you have coming up in the future? Oh, well, we're... Uh, we're embarked on a really interesting um, project right now. The uh, Muscoca is essentially largely unknown in the, certainly in the academic community. There's been some work up there in uh, research and so on, but, but it, there's a real need for more research because the Muscoca is still pristine. It acts as a, um, a control. It can act as a control. Certainly our Mayfield site, it's a valley that's, you know, 80 miles long or whatever. It uh, has no roads, no development of any kind, no ATVs. There's a few jet boat access or some jet boat access down in the lower part of the river. 
but the upper part, the uh, you know, 30 or 40 miles has no human access basically at all other than air and whatever uh, horse travel, which is extremely infrequent. So it can act as a control. And we're, we're looking at developing a research uh, station idea that could potentially help to collect research for the Musquecachica. And as part of that, we're uh, putting in some infrastructure, you know, basically a pavilion roof and, and other infrastructure at our Mayfield camp to accommodate research. Because we just think that over the long run, it's going to be so important that people understand what the values of the place are and how, I guess, to, to shine a light on our activities in other areas, I think is so important. If you compare what wildlife are doing in a pristine area compared to what they're doing in a in a impacted area, I think that will draw out a lot of information and really, really important uh, ideas. So we're working to put that in place at this point. We have a lot of interest and and uh, we're well on our way on that project. You've written a book, Crossing the Great Divide. How'd that come about? You know, I have to give uh, credit to my wife, Donna, for this. Um, she knew that I had some stories <clears throat> written because when I'm on the uh, on the trap line, there's always time in the evenings to do some writing and that kind of thing. And I had I had a collection of stories that that I'd written, but she uh, insisted, Wayne, you've got to get those things out. You've got to put them out and uh, see if you can uh, uh, get it published. So Creekstone Press was a, is a press here in British Columbia that was looking for a new project. And Donna had those contacts. They took a look at the manuscript that I had prepared, and they agreed, yeah, let's uh, let's do this thing. If folks want to get a copy of that book, where can they get it? It's called uh, Crossing the Divide, and it's available on, uh, it's not available on Amazon, but it's available on, from all independent booksellers, certainly in British Columbia. So Monroe's Books uh, is a good one. Chapters can get it. Uh, any independent independent bookseller uh, will have that will have access to that book. Any thoughts about lessons learned over the years of your wilderness travel? Well, there's a lot of lessons out there uh, that certainly that you can you learn. One of the things I tell my uh, my guides, well, there's a, there's a few different different ones, but but certainly be calm at all times is the one that I tell them. You know what things things go to hell. A horse starts bucking through camp or, you know, you got a snowstorm with two feet of snow and you got to make it over the path. Be calm at all times. This is the first thing. And that, that's a, a personal lesson. On a, on a larger le- a larger level, I think that the Musquecachica can teach us what true wilderness is all about. It's a place that still has all its wildlife, still pristine, still, still it's a big chunk of the continental wilderness that still exists. In its, in its pristine state. And that, for me, that, that understanding that, hey, this wasn't just more land. This was important country. And it had an important, uh, it was important for the globe. It was, it was internationally important. And I think that that understanding is, is a, was a huge lesson for me. That, yeah, we enjoy it, but it's way bigger than that. It's important for the health of the, of the global community and the, and the global environment. It's going to be um, very important in uh, terms of climate change in the future, because as climate changes, the wildlife has to be able to adapt. And one of the easiest places to do that is in the mountains where you have vertical uh, relief so that 
if the if the water uh, gets very hot, they can always move up the up the mountains to survive, and that's what the Muscoquichica offers. Basically, climate ramps they call it, where animals can survive uh, in a varied and and complex landscape that that offers options for them to survive. And if it's not messed up, if they haven't you don't have roads all over the place and and that kind of thing, then the chances of survival are are so much more increased. So I would say the the MK is important on a global level for as far as climate change goes, which is obviously a huge issue for all of us. It seems to me that when we go into true wilderness like that, it's not so much that it changes us. It it occurred to me that perhaps maybe it just brings us back to the way we mm. naturally are. Instead of being wrapped up in you know what we've constructed in in our societies. I think it brings us back to what we we truly are. And I think it's just kind of discovering or revealing ourselves how we truly are as opposed to changing us. That's a good point. That's a good point. It gets us back to the fundamentals on what's what's really important. Keeping calm in adversity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, appreciating nature and uh a few caribou to lead us out of danger. Indeed. Absolutely right. You know, there's lots of lessons there and and lots of lessons for the world, I think. And looking at, well, that's why I wrote the book, because I think that, you know, the the stories there, that they, tell, they tell a story, but they, there's also a bigger thing going on. And that is, what relevance does this have to the world as a whole? And, and, uh, and to my place in it, you know, not, not personally my place in it, but the reader's place in it. And I think that's so important that, you know, we consider wilderness in a way that, uh, you know, not many of us have in the past. I think it, I think we needed a new view uh, of the importance of these places. Every place that's wild is important now because of, you know, we've we've gone through this world. And just in our li- in our lifetimes, it's changed so, so much. And so these little scraps of wilderness that are left. Well, a Muscoquizica is a big, stra- big scrap, but there's a lot of scraps out there. All of these places are important, and all of them have to be protected if we're going to maintain, you know, populations and, and ecosystems into the future. So, yeah, that's what that's what the wilderness teaches you. Thank you so much for, for sharing these stories with us. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be able to get the word out about, well, certainly my favorite place on the planet, and I hope many others at this point as well, the Muscoquichica. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you, Michael. All right. We'll see you down the road. Perfect. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.